0: Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup episode 86 for the week ending Monday, December 5th, 2016. This is where we round up the week's most important tech, digital and innovation news from across the African continent. My name is Andi Demasugu. Thanks for listening in. The festive season is properly upon us, folks. Can't believe how quickly the year has gone. Anyway, in this week's show, I'll be sharing not one, but two audio snippets taped on my recent visit to Cape Town for SAP's Executive Digital Exchange. Now, the event was an exclusive invite-only gathering, first organized by SAP in London, Paris, and Berlin, before coming to Cape Town, South Africa. I guess we're invited to connect and share experiences in facilitated sessions, led by SAP's Global Digital Transformation Officer, Dr. Shaki Budri, as well as SAP Africa CEO, Brett Parker. So I caught up with both gentlemen at the fringes of the event to comment on some of the trends they're observing across the 25 odd industries they support. Now that's coming up later, but first we'll unpack the week's news headlines, which include the Nigerian Communications Commission lifting its price floor on data, Uber and Taxify set to get some competition in South Africa, and Cyber Entrapped. Crimes sweeping the world, believed to be linked to criminals based in Morocco and the Ivory Coast. But before we go any further, let's do this. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by the African Tech Conversation series, which features in-depth chats with leading figures from Africa's tech and innovation scene. Now we're happy to announce that. The next season of the series is just one week away and will feature the likes of Solomon Sefer, Director of IBM Research on the Continent, Aline Blabor, Managing Partner at TBL Mirror Fund and Safaricom Spark Venture Fund, as well as Chad Larson, Co-Founder and Chief Credit Officer at MCOPA. Yep. It's fixing to be a pretty awesome season indeed. Now in the meantime, do catch up on some of the interviews you might have missed by heading to africantechroundup.com and clicking on the African Tech Conversations tab in the main menu or search for African Tech Conversations on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher or any other great podcatcher out there. And now it's on to this week's news. First up, if you're into performing sexual acts to strangers in front of your webcam, you might want to invest in another pastime because... A form of cyber entrapment, now popularly known as sextortion, is becoming a thing worldwide. Now, in the UK alone, the number of people reporting financially motivated cyber-enabled blackmails went from 385 in 2015 to 864 in 2016. Now, organized crime syndicates said to be working out of Morocco, the Ivory Coast, and the Philippines are befriending lonely, unsuspecting people online, convincing them to perform sexual acts on camera, then threatening to share videos and images of these people with their friends, family, and professional contacts if they don't meet Demands for payment. Now, these criminals are said to be targeting men a lot more frequently if late. And in the past week, reports surfaced of two teenagers in the UK killing themselves when these creeps threatened to ruin their lives if they couldn't pay up. It's really sad. And so, to the criminal losers on the internet pushing this hustle, come on, stop it, man. And uh, of course, if you're contemplating revealing your nakedness on the internet, I mean, do you have to? Well, Now, to happier news, data-loving Nigerians are breathing a sigh of relief following the Nigerian Communications Commission, the NCC, suspending its plan to enforce a new data price floor, which would have effectively increased data prices in the country. Now, the NCC has come out saying that they've taken into account the feelings of consumers. How sweet. And then they changed their minds. This, of course, after they were blasted on Twitter. Uh, I'm not sure who at the NCC thought consumers would be happy to pay uh, 90 kobo per megabyte instead of the uh, industry average of 53 kobo per megabyte that the four largest mobile operators in Nigeria charge. Well, good for you, Nigerian Twitter, for helping keep data prices low over the festive season and beyond. To Namibia now, where uh, congratulations are due to that country uh, as they've been ranked number one on the continent by the inaugural Ashish J. Taka Global Entrepreneurship Index. Now, Ashish Taka is the Ugandan born multimillionaire who started out selling computers to schoolmates when he was younger. Uh, he now has interests in everything from real estate to tourism, ICT to renewable energy and manufacturing across 16 odd countries on the continent and beyond. Now, his index measures entrepreneurial environments around the world and is assessed. 85 countries against a set of criteria spanning policy, infrastructure, education, entrepreneurial environment, as well as finance. So Namibia ranked 42nd overall, uh, beating out the likes of South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria. Rwanda then ranked 43rd, Botswana came in at 44th, and South Africa 46th overall. Now, according to the survey conducted by the mara foundation and opinion research singapore was ranked the best in the world in terms of providing the best environment for entrepreneurs zambia south africa and rwanda were the top three african countries in the financial category now i'm not knocking this list or others like it but i reckon there's a fair amount of subjectivity at play here Uh, but congratulations to namibia nonetheless uh, for coming out tops uh, on the continent but i would love for those of you doing business in namibia with first-hand experience as to why that ranking might be well deserved to you know go ahead and give us a shout and tell us all about it holler at us on twitter at african roundup or email us at hello at com. tell us why namibia is so awesome so south africa now where uber and taxify can look forward to some competition in the ride-sharing space uh, this is zebra cabs has just raised over 21.6 million dollars from Future Growth Asset Management to expand their owner-driver scheme in Johannesburg. Now, Zebra Cabs is owned by S.A. Taxi, and they're planning to enable owner-drivers without credit records to access vehicle finance uh, to buy a vehicle, as well as plan to provide them the support they'd need to start their business. Now, also on the cards is providing customers with the option of booking a taxi telephonically. Um, Sorry to break it to you, S.A. Taxi and Zebra Cabs, but no one's going to do that. Uh, uh, well you could hail a taxi the old-fashioned way you know at the curb just you know lift a finger or raise your hand or something they plan to make it possible for you to do that or go head-to-head with the likes of Uber and Taxify by allowing you to to book a taxi via an app or even on the web happily they plan to take cash uh, you know accept card payment uh, as well as allow people to make payments using mobile e-wallets According to an SA taxi spokesman, Zebra Cabs aims to achieve critical mass before expanding operations to other major cities in South Africa like Cape Town and Durban. And the rather ambitious goal they've set for themselves to reach by 2020 is to have 3,000 Zebra Cabs on the road. Well, good luck to them. Meanwhile, though, uh, up north in Egypt, Uber is planning to spend nearly $28 million on expansion efforts in that country over the next two years. Now, the cash is said to be earmarked for building a regional support center to provide support for countries in the Middle East and North Africa particularly French-speaking countries. Now they also plan to grow out their support center in the region, having recently acquired a 1,500 square meter space that's expected to comfortably house 180 employees. So Uber not sitting still while competitors like Zebra Cabs join the party. To Gambia now, where President Yaya Jame has uh, conceded defeat to Adama Barrow, in that country's presidential elections that were held last week. I think most people expected that Jame's 22-year tenure would be extended, uh, especially after reports of the Internet being shut down on the eve of the polls. But uh, Jameh surprised his critics by accepting election defeat and congratulating the winner instead of doing all he could to cling to power. Now, I don't know, folks. Help me here. Um, are there any good arguments out there for shutting down the Internet during an election? Uh, and I'm speaking now in the African context, where there's obviously in some in in many African countries uh, an unfortunate history of violence around elections. I mean, let's say for example, you knew for certain that people were planning to incite uh, violence, uh, for example, or and use the internet and social media to to rally support for such crimes against humanity. Would would it be justified to 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 shut down the internet or or block access to social media cuz sometimes it feels like a one-sided narrative uh, you know the this idea of a power-hungry incumbent shutting down the internet to prevent an opponent from basically beating him or her at the polls uh, you know let me know what you think um obviously playing devil's advocate a little bit here but I mean, how different is, is shutting down the internet, for example, to declaring a curfew or, you know, um, you know banning people from the streets for t- certain times, you know, to prevent violence from breaking out? I mean, these are things that even more developed nations, uh, you know, tactics that they, they, they sometimes uh, default to when they try and control violent outbursts and such. Mm-hmm. Let me know what you think. Uh, give us a shout on Twitter at African Roundup. So South Africa next, where one of the week's biggest acquisitions went down late last week, and uh, rather quietly at that, the ICT giant Internet Solutions, which is a subsidiary of the even larger giant uh, tech group that is Dimension Data, has now bought the naspers owned ISP. MWeb, which boasts 325,000 customers. Now, this is not a deal too many people saw coming. I certainly didn't. Uh, there's no word on what the deal is worth just yet. It is, of course, still subject to approval by local competition authorities and shareholders, but uh, I reckon that's largely a formality at this point. The interesting thing about this deal is that uh, Internet Solutions operates mainly in the enterprise space, and uh, this acquisition represents a massive move into the consumer market for that company, so it'll be interesting to see how they integrate this purchase into their portfolio as to Naspers and why they would sell mweb, well, despite headline earnings growing by thirty one percent to a seriously ridiculous $914 million. It's worth highlighting how most of that revenue was made by their offshore businesses. Uh, you know, making proper money on the continent is proving to be a rather tricky proposition for Africa's biggest tech firm. I, I do wonder if uh, any of the mobile telcos were ever in the running to buy MWeb. That would have been a coup, I think, for someone like MTN or Vodacom or even like Liquid Telecoms, which of course is owned by uh, Econet. But uh, staying with South African news, a quick update on the Please Call Me court case involving Kenneth Makate. Now, he's the former Vodacom employee who successfully proved in court that uh, Vodacom stole his Please Call Me idea and made millions off it for years. Now, the Please Call Me allows customers with uh, a no balance on their mobile phones to alert someone with a free text message, easily one of the most popular cheapo moves of the... Uh, mid to late 2000s. Now, back in April this year, South Africa's highest court, the Constitutional Court, ruled that Vodacom had to compensate Makati for his idea. But it seems that uh, both Makati and Vodacom haven't been able to agree on a method of calculating what might be a fair payout. And now it uh, appears Makati has decided uh, to pause negotiations and take the matter back to the Constitutional Court uh, in, in a bid for them to clarify, quote, the import and meaning of the judgment. Now, I continue to root for the little guy on this one. Uh, he must be exhausted after all that time in court, I have to say. Uh, come on, Vodacom. Give the man his dues. Come on now. Let's get this done so he can retire to an island somewhere. And finally, three interesting international items to round things off. Firstly, uh, Netflix has made a lot of people happy by announcing that some of their content will now be available for offline viewing. It's a move that's widely seen as them folding under the pressure of amazon prime having offered that functionality for over a year now they'd long argued that they didn't want to do this because you know wireless infrastructure has to catch up and, and and you know and and that's what people should be asking for not offline watching come on come on guys we all know the real reason that netflix is um resisted offline viewing for as long as they have. I mean, it it basically ushers in, I think, a a season of licensing hell for Netflix that uh, they would rather have avoided. But yeah, a nightmare for them, certainly a dream scenario for many of Netflix's um, ardent fans around the world. Then last week, of course, 26,500 national lottery players in the UK had their online accounts accessed. Um, I think that's just a polite way of saying hacked. So the hack led to the National Lottery ordering compulsory password resets. Uh, They they then went on to claim that cyber criminals weren't able to access, quote, core National Lottery systems and that people's exposure, as far as their personal data was concerned, was limited because uh, the lottery claims they don't hold full debit card or bank account details in National Lottery players' online accounts. And they also claim that no money was taken or deposited. I don't know how much comfort I would take in that personally. The UK's National Lottery has 9.5 million customers registered to play online, but only about 50 of the compromised accounts uh, were actually suspended uh, following the attack. I guess this report is right on trend. A hack here, a hack there, a hack everywhere. I fully expect this to continue. Now, finally, you might recall that in last week's show, we covered the passing of the UK's Investigatory Powers Act and touched on how it's now legal for the UK's government communications headquarters, as GCHQ, and many other government agencies not only to snoop on. Uh, U.K. citizens within the U.K., but also access information from anyone outside the U.K. Well, it's not like the Americans were going to stand by and let the Brits have all the fun. It's now being reported that the FBI has been granted the authority uh, by U.S. lawmakers to gain access to computers anywhere in the U.S. with a judicially granted search. Now, in some instances, the FBI is is also in a position to gain access to information from individuals located outside of the U.S. thanks to something called Rule 41, which is a statute in the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure that regulates um, how federal authorities can search and seize property and information. And this rule came into effect on December 2nd. Now, in the past, judges were only permitted to issue warrants under that rule uh, within the jurisdiction of their courts in the U.S. But now, thanks to those changes, the U.S. government's powers uh, in terms of hacking individuals as well as hacking people en masse have been greatly increased. And not just in the U.S., but anywhere in the world. Now, there's no doubt that the U.K. and the U.S. are setting precedents in the name of national security that I, I totally expect will have unpleasant implications further down the line Not just in terms of potential abuse in their own countries, but in terms of other countries around the world following suit and um, possibly turning our planet into one massive police state. And that's the week's news, folks. As promised, though, I'm about to share snippets from two insight-filled conversations I taped at the fringe of SAP's Executive Digital Exchange, which went down in Cape Town last week. Now, we start with my chat with SAP's Global Digital Transformation Officer, the Moroccan-born Dr. Shaki Boudri. Now, I asked him to share some of the most common misconceptions he encounters regarding digital transformation, you know, as he interacts with executives around the world. And I also asked him to explain the strategic thinking he might have observed uh, that's behind the trend towards large enterprises making big plays outside their traditional businesses. Take a listen to what he said.
1: You have to divide the world into two group of companies. Uh, The companies who are dealing with the consumer, there was no misconception. They know the consumer is gang, they're using the phone, they shop online, they search online, they do. So a lot of companies are trying to reach those consumers in ways that they may not be familiar or comfortable with. Omni-channel, they need to service them differently, they need to think about the value they create for that consumer. And, and a lot of that comes down to really knowing your consumer really well, understanding their needs, predicting their needs, being able to. But you're never going to finish is, 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 is a road with no end. Just as you think you finish a project, you keep adding more and more. So those companies like a bank and insurance, a retailer, uh, companies like that, they, they understand they, they've been in a digital storm for a long time. And then you have the other companies like, let's say, oil and gas, manufacturing, transportation companies. They're starting to wake up to this digital because if you look at what's happening in Davos, there was a huge talk about Industry 4.0, Internet of Things. Everything is connected. You take the car industry. Everybody talks about autonomous car. You talk about farming, people talking about the future of farming. You're talking about transportation. Everybody's talking about connected logistics. So those companies are waking up to say, oh, maybe digital can transform my business. But they don't have the same fear. Somebody's going to steal their customer. So they don't have the same urgency, but they're waking up. So the misconception is maybe I have time. Um, maybe I need... To spend a lot of time, go and analyze and paralyze and do this. They, they very often don't understand. And, and very often in these industries, you find a lot of executives that are at the very, at the end of their career and digital to them is not yet the future for them. Then you have generation underneath them who really want to change one to one to me. So there was like a shift happening in the management to think about the future. And I think, I think the, the biggest issue I see for this company is they didn't connect yet. Digital is not about just improving. Digital is about changing your business model. That's the biggest misconception is not just improving a business process. It's maybe rethinking your business model completely. And, 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 and I'm starting to see maybe most companies today are starting to educate themselves what digital is and understanding the power of artificial intelligence and other things. So it's, it's getting there. It's much better than a year ago. And I think a year from now, I will have another answer for you because it will change. This is just fascinating what's going on.
0: My my next question is about this trend towards uh, corporates not being content to stay in their lane. What are some of the major trends you're observing across the world as far as corporates not just tweaking this and improving that, but like attacking an entirely different industry, oftentimes uh, way outside their core competency
1: if there was a market that is not well served, it leaves a big door for somebody to come and offer a better service. That's what it is. So companies are now thinking, number one, um, how can I improve my own business? Uh, should I acquire another company? Should I use digital to improve my productivity? That's That's a given. But some companies are saying, do I need a different business model? And when they think about the business model, some of the ideas they're looking at is, can I provide services and products that are unique to my customer? I'll give you an example about people who stay in the same swim lane, but they change the business model in the same swim lane. You take a large uh, manufacturer of uh, mining equipment, and what they decided, they, they put they put um, a lot of sensors into the equipment. They linked them to satellites. They go to the mining companies, and they say, don't buy the equipment. I will run them for you. I will maintain them for you. You pay me by tonnage. So you don't have to pay millions and millions of dollars on buying equipment. I will own the equipment. Just pay me. If your business does well, I do well. If your business doesn't do well, I don't do well. So we, we're a partner. But in exchange, I own the equipment. From a start that, I control them. I know when to maintain them. I know what, what to change, what to do, so I can improve the cost of maintaining this equipment. That's doing the same things, doing it differently. But then you other other companies who are saying, well, I'm a telco company. I would love to get into media because I have all these millions of consumers. I can deliver media. I can do this. Then you have companies who are like there was a large, large company in the world here that has got 200,000 or 200 million, I think, uh, kilometers of wireline for delivering electricity. And they're saying, why, do I, why don't I either fiber optic, it's, the, the infrastructure is there, and then now I can start providing also uh, networking to farms, to everything else, because I'm everywhere. I've got electricity everywhere. So they could become the next the next telco, te- telco industry. And those who are going to be successful getting out of that industry, they have to do it by going away from their core business one or two degrees. If you go way too far away from what you do, you have to make an acquisition. You have to acquire the talent and the know-how. So if you look at the telco company, their their core competency is they know how to manage infrastructure on a large scale. So they're saying if I already have this infrastructure, this engineer is going and putting the wires, I just add another wire. It doesn't cost me much. So they're not going too far away from their core competency. And adding networking equipment, they can always outsource it to somebody who knows how to do it. So those will be successful. But those who go completely off and they will do something different. I haven't seen that much success (laughs) apart from high-tech companies like Google and others attacking industries because they they come in with the core competency of data. Data is a core competency that applies to every industry. They can get into oil trading. They can get to anything they want. So some companies have the advantage of being able to enter any industry, but very few do, and those who do need to stick very close to their core competency.
0: And now here's SAP Africa CEO Brett Parker talking about one of the biggest strategic decisions that SAP's leadership made back in 2010 with the aim of maintaining their dominance in an increasingly competitive global market. And I also asked him to give me a sense uh, of what
2: greenfield opportunities uh, SAP is pursuing on the continent. Take a listen. In my opinion, the biggest decision that was made in 2010 was when uh, Jim Snabe and, and uh, Bill McDermott got together. Uh, probably, I-, I wasn't in the meeting, but probably with Hasso as well. And they probably decided, you know, we're either going to be a company that is going to be a leader, that's going to acquire un- other companies, uh, and we're going to be relevant to the markets and the customers that we serve. Or alternatively, we're going to be a company that will be acquired by another. And I think, you know, that fundamental decision... Uh, at that point in time was key because that decision leads to many others. The others are things like, right, we need an aggressive acquisition strategy. We need to understand where the markets are going and where we want to be. Uh, in our business, you want to be number one and you want to be leading in the areas that you serve. So we're number one in the industry. Nobody does industry like SAP. Uh, 27 different industries. Uh, We know all the business processes start to finish. We work with our customers globally to develop those processes. We make them available in best practices. We're number one in mobile. We acquired Sybase to give us that position. We're number one in analytics. We're number one in in in-memory computing. Uh, We're We're in many of the segments in cloud. We're number one, whether it's about transactions you measure or whether it's about number of customers. We're number one in cloud. Um, and, uh, we're fast becoming number one in that data, database as well. We're currently, uh, you know, lagging a little behind some of the traditional database vendors in the, in the, uh, um, let's call it the, um, you know, the client server and the relational database environment. at IBM. Yeah, so, 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 you know, those are, those are the areas. But if you, if you heard what I just said, you know, that strategy that we or that decision we made in 2010 was to be number one in those categories. And that's why we aggressively went over these, you know, after these acquisitions and, and then also built from the core, you know. And, uh, and today, if you look, I think, uh, you know, if you take our revenue, you started with a question of ERP, right? I mean, how important is ERP? ERP is super important. And I'm not just saying that because we're SAP, uh, the reality is we do a lot more today than just ERP. ERP is probably about 18% of our revenue. So we're not, uh, we, we are the best at ERP. We run everything in memory, everything live, but we're not just an ERP company. And it's important, important that people r- uh, recognize that. What's like totally green fields that you guys are going for at the moment? Totally green fields. <laughs> okay. So look, I mean, uh, I think first of all, um, there's opportunities in industries on the continent that, uh, that we haven't invested in and we haven't uh, gone after and i think the time is right for that and i'm just going to mention two major ones so the first one is healthcare uh, so we will now have a dedicated team of people that are going to focus on healthcare um and uh, and bring some of our, our healthcare uh, innovation uh, solutions um and some of the th- great things we've built with our partners you know to the continent to improve healthcare predictive healthcare management of of pa- patient health All of these types of of things that will help not only the the healthcare providers, but also the citizens of of Africa, right, to to manage their their health better and to understand it better and things like that. So there's a lot of that type of work that I see happening, and that's Greenfield's type of things that has not been there before, and nobody is really pushing it. And we see that we have an opportunity to do that uh, through the communities, the healthcare communities and practitioners and things that we're working with. Uh, The other one is agriculture, right? So agriculture is a big one um and um we think that there is a big opportunity uh through innovation and through digitization to change the the agricultural business on the continent uh you know people spoke about our oh, brazil is is providing most of the agriculture it's nonsense you know africa's agricultural and arable land is five times the size of any other continent globally this is the breadbasket of the world. It's called Africa. So the big thing for us is to then take some of the key partnerships we have with some big customers, like an OCP, for example, in Morocco, who supply a lot of the fertilizer and things for, for the farming communities on the continent and globally. What's an OCP? it's a it's a company that's based in Morocco. Oh, is it a name of a company? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah it's a, name of a company. So that, that was an acronym. <laughs> yeah. So they basically and it's a French French so I can not I'm not going to try am to challenge challenge yourself. PCP is the abbreviated version, right? So so anyway, so they're a, they're a um company we're working with and yeah, and really what we want to do is we want to take um more value to the farmer. So at the end of the day, you know, a farmer should know that if they put you know this amount of fertilizer on these crops at this time and this amount of water and all of that that knowledge and that technology in place they will increase the the yield on those crops by let's say 30% or 40% so those types of things then the other thing is is that when they take these these crops to market they need to know how much they're going to get for the crops right before they get there so it's like you know the, that whole supply chain, the the ecosystem, and the technology that that is needed to improve the agricultural business in Africa is a greenfields opportunity. And for us, uh, we're we're best positioned to do that because we understand it. Um, we've got the partnerships that we need to make it happen. Um, and now what we need to do is we need to bring the communities along. So you know, Africa is a big place. You don't want to start with the hardest pieces, so there's some softer landings that you can go after, and we already have some projects in place in some of the areas in East Africa, for example, and in North Africa, uh, where we're working with some some co-ops and other people to to get these types of solutions available to the farmers. Many, many thanks to both Dr. Shaki Boudri and Brett Parker of SAP
0: for sharing their insights with me. Look out for the full conversations I had with both gentlemen over the next few days. I will be publishing them on the Quick Tech Chats playlist, which of course you can find at africantechroundup.com or at soundcloud.com forward slash africantechroundup. And so that's nearly it for this week. This episode of the African Tech Roundup is brought to you by the African Tech Conversation Series, which features in-depth chats with leading figures from Africa's tech and innovation scene. Now, once again, I'm happy to announce that the next season of the series is landing in just one week, and it'll feature the likes of Solomon Assefa, Chad Larson, and others. And in the meantime, you can catch up on some of the interviews you might have missed by heading to africantechroundup.com and clicking on the African Tech Conversations tab in the main menu. And so that's the week's show, folks. Please join me again next week on africantechroundup.com. But for now, I'm Andy Lemasugu. Until next time, do take care, Africa.